what's going on, anesthesia nerds. This is Tasha McNerney. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Veterinary Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about nothing but anesthesia and pain management and how you can make your patients' lives even better. Today, I am joined by the fantastic anesthesiologist, Dr. Bryce Dooley. If you have been at any of the Fetch conferences, maybe you have caught some of her lectures. Uh, If you have listened to the Anesthesia Nerds podcast before, you know we had her on as a guest early on. I am fortunate enough to work with her at some practices in the Philadelphia area. Uh, Dr. Dooley is a graduate of St. George's. She did a residency at The Ohio State University. Uh, And right now she works in the Philadelphia and New Jersey area as a per diem anesthesiologist and consultant going in and kind of like I do, making everyone's anesthesia better, safer, faster, stronger, et cetera. So thank you for joining us again, Dr. Dooley. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here and talk about one of my favorite drugs. She's very complicated and perhaps a little misunderstood. Yeah. So guys, I asked Dr. Dooley to come on because we were at a practice working together um, not too long ago. And we started talking about pharmacology, um, you know, as one does. Like normal people, I think, talk about like, what did you think about succession or um, just what's going on? But, you know, I I really start all of my social interactions talking about drug pharmacology. (laughs) So we're talking. We're great at parties. Right? I know. (laughs) I'm I'm real fun to have around. (laughs) Wah, wah. (laughs) Anyway, we were talking about opioids and kind of how on the human side, they're being much more opioid sparing and leaning on things like adjunctive uh, analgesics and local anesthesia techniques. And then we kind of further got talking about different opioids and opioid classes. And we landed on a drug that people seem to love, but maybe they don't love, or it's really just misunderstood. And that's buprenorphine. So that's right. I asked Dr. Dooley to come on today and talk about some of the intricacies of buprenorphine, how we're using it, how we should be using it, maybe how we could be using it better as part of a multimodal analgesic protocol. So thank you, Dr. Dooley. I know that you have done some extensive research on buprenorphine and you actually love buprenorphine. I do. I do. I you know, if, again, I always say if I were res- running for president, my stance would be more local blocks, less opioids. I'm really a strong proponent of trying to back off on these really potent opioids uh, because of all of their side effects. But buprenorphine is a little bit different than our typical opioids. So I think it's a very interesting drug, uh, both pharmacokinetically and pharmacodynamically. And I think there's a lot of room for research and work with buprenorphine in the future. Sure. So let me ask you a question. And uh, I'm going to just go slightly a little bit here before we get into like the questions Mm -hmm. that you and I had talked about. Um, When people hear about opioids and they hear about words like a full mu agonist opioid or a partial like buprenorphine, can you explain to people what that means? Sure. So this is this is super important that we're all on the same page when we think about the different types of receptors and the full, the partials, the antagonists. Uh, So just a little bit of background information. Remember, the body has a couple of different opioid receptors. Classically, we're taught the three, right? We have the mu, the kappa, and the delta. There's actually a fourth one. It used to be called opioid receptor-like receptor. Now it's called the nociceptin 
receptor, so the NOP. And really these different receptors have different activity in our body, when we, but when we think about the analgesic activity, really comes strongly from that mu receptor. And these mu receptors are in the central nervous system, the brain, the spinal cord, and they exist so that we have endogenous opioid-like substances, endorphins, enkephalons. And when we get ourselves injured, our body can release these endorphins that can bind to our opioid receptors, our mu receptors, and they can exert an analgesic effect to sort of get us through some very painful, very troublesome times. Now, when we think about our synthetic opioids that we administer to our patients, right, our fentanyl, our hydromorphone, you know, they can come in different classes. So we can have a pure mu opioid. Again, that's fentanyl, hydromorphone, uh, morphine is the classic. And when we say that they're a pure mu, they can bind to that receptor and cause, you know, a signaling cascade that allows that receptor to then have its full effect in terms of causing antinociception. It helps inhibit substance P release, inhibit glutamate, decreases nerve signaling so that the body feels analgesia. When we think about partial mu agonists, they still bind to the mu receptor, but they may not be able to exert this massive full effect that the receptor could provide for the body. And then we think about antagonists, which is, you know, if a if an antagonist, say naloxone, binds to our mu receptors, it shuts down the the opioid-like effects um, from those receptors. And so we have all these, we have these different classes of opioids that we can use and sort of have on board for analgesia or for reversals. So those are the big ones. And again, people also talk about a little bit of the delta and the kappa, but in our in our everyday clinical practice, they aren't as big of a deal in terms of both analgesics as well as these side effects that opioids can have, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Yeah. So I feel like when I go into relief and, you know, usually probably like you, I'm going into relief at places that are university level, specialty and emergency. And one of the biggest complaints that I tend to hear is that people in emergency or surgery department get really jammed up if they get a a patient that came from a referring hospital and that hospital gave buprenorphine, right? That's like the classic, like, oh, well, yep. now they gave buprenorphine and it binds so well to the receptors. I, I, I'm powerless and I can't do anything. I... What do I do? So is that true? Um, Can we give additional opioids if a patient has had buprenorphine? Should we just layer in more buprenorphine? Like, what do you usually do when a patient like that presents to surgery? And maybe, you know, a couple hours ago, they got buprenorphine at the RDVM. Yes, there's lots of things to think about. And again, going back to these, these agonists and things. So buprenorphine being the partial mu agonist, people have a meltdown thinking that if it got buprenorphine, there's no way we could give it hydromorphone on top of that. The dog's going to explode in flames. It's all, it's all going to be a nightmare. And that's, that's not necessarily true. Uh, remember that, you know, buprenorphine is exerting pain control through that mu receptor agonism. And 
you can add a pure mu opioid on top of it. You, you know, there are studies that show that you can even give it at the same time and it seems to actually augment the analgesia. This is a very, very different story from, say, if a patient received butorphanol. Remember, butorphanol, being a mu antagonist, is actually going to work against us. So please, if you are, if you do have a patient that you think is painful, you think may need surgery coming up, uh, do try to avoid butorphanol. But, you know, I get it. You see a dog, gets hit by a car, something like that, comes into an RDVM, and the only opioid that they may have there is buprenorphine. Administer the buprenorphine and send it off. And when it comes to us at a place that does have, you know, the full stock of any opioid we could want, we can add on to that. So it is important to remember that, you know, it's, yes, it does bind very, very tightly to the mu opioid receptor, right? Buprenorphine has very high uh, potency, meaning you don't need a lot to get them to bind to the receptors. So, you know, they are, and they are going to hang around for a while. That said, after a couple of hours, you know, it is starting to wear off and it is time for, you know, more opioids. And you can add a full mu opioid on top of that, help augment the analgesia. And I think this also speaks to the importance of not relying only on opioids. You know, if you have a patient who is coming in, broke his leg, something like that, and you want to give another opioid, absolutely give another, another opioid. But don't forget about our other analgesics that we can use to really round out our multimodal analgesia, our anesthetic experience, and provide for this patient, whether that's NSAIDs, some ketamine, uh, local blocks, of course. And they can all work together really well. I think, you know, if you look at a lot of these studies that say that buprenorphine may not be effective at this dose, you know, in this population, do you remember they're trying to control for just looking at a single drug? So they're not using multimodal analgesia in the same way that we would in an actual clinical patient. Right. That makes sense. So I also hear from a lot of people that they're hesitant to use buprenorphine because if they like, right, if the animal is still in pain, then there's not much they can do because there's this ceiling effect on buprenorphine. And it just, you know, you won't get more pain control and it always has this ceiling. And then what can you do? Which, yeah, you could probably add in adjuncts. But what is this whole ceiling effect thing that people keep referring to with buprenorphine? Yeah. So the ceiling effect, this is like this, I don't, this cloud that buprenorphine can't shake is this idea of the ceiling effect, or even some people will say the, the bell shaped curve that at very high doses, either you, you don't get any more analgesia or worst case scenario is you actually get, uh, a heightened nociception. So you get a reduction in the analgesic properties. And this is super, super interesting to me because we have to really think about why we can even make this judgment on buprenorphine. And the thing is, there are studies that show that giving higher doses of buprenorphine do, you know, linearly increase the analgesic effect of it. But there may be a point where you get to a certain dose that it doesn't provide any more analgesia. 
So say there's a study that showed providing 40 micrograms per kilogram versus 20 micrograms per kilogram of buprenorphine to dogs didn't have any change in its analgesic effects. So some people would say, well, sure, it reached its ceiling effect. But I would, I would make the argument that maybe instead of reaching a ceiling effect, we're actually just, we're beyond the therapeutic dose. And the only reason we could even try this with buprenorphine is because where it really has its ceiling effect is in the negative side effects of opioids. You know, you can double the dose, but not get any more respiratory depression. Whereas if you go way outside the therapeutic range in fentanyl, say, we don't know if that's going to linearly keep increasing the analgesia because we can't test it because the side effects of apnea, bradycardia, respiratory depression are too severe. The patients would be, would be dead. So there's this, yes, this, this interesting sort of double-edged sword that buprenorphine has, um, but they are starting to think that, yes, it has a ceiling effect in its, respi say its respiratory depressant effects, in its uh, cardiovascular depressant effects, but maybe not actually in its analgesic effects. And part of, part of its interesting pharmacokinetics is that, you know, again, we talked about the mu, the delta, the kappa receptors, then there's that NOP receptor. And they're starting to think that buprenorphine at higher doses also works on that NOP receptor, which helps actually modulate the response that the mu opioid receptor elicits when it's being agonized. So this may be playing a role in buprenorphine's ability to actually keep increasing its analgesic effects without having the really profound negative classic opioid effects, nausea, uh, you know, um, vomiting, the bradycardia, the respiratory depression. So again, I think this is an area where there's going to be a lot of research coming up in the next couple of years, especially as like we were saying, Maybe we're trying to get away from opioids, heavy opioid uses perioperatively. There's a lot of patients, human patients, who are already opioid dependent. We're trying to get them off of those opioids, trying to get them recovered off of opioid dependence. Buprenorphine, I think, is going to be a very interesting target in the next couple of years. That's really interesting that, I mean, I um, and you guys will... I'll get some studies from Dr. Julian. We'll put them in the show notes if you guys want to read up more on what she's talking about. But um, it's really interesting to me because I had read some things, and maybe you can speak to this, that there are some human studies that showed that you can get like equivalent analgesia from buprenorphine as you would with like a class two, like morphine. So yeah. I guess like when I'm thinking some of these practices that I go into and they may be in the middle of nowhere and they may not have access to schedule two drugs. Yep. Do you think that they can still do really great analgesia with buprenorphine as their only opioid? I do. I, I really, really do. I think, you know, if you use that as your opioid and you include other adjuncts to it, it's, it's absolutely fine to be to be your opioid, you know, and there are areas where it is, it is not feasible to have fentanyl hydromorphone, you know, and 
So if buprenorphine is your option, I think you can really, really work with it. There's one place I work where the opioid that we have is buprenorphine. And it's an ophthalmology office. Uh, So perhaps the severity of pain in our patients may not be like a shattered limb. But again, I think we do have some quite painful patients that, that do very, very well with our doses of buprenorphine. Yeah. And I'm wondering, like you said, with some of that other, you know, especially in like maybe abdominal patients or your Mm -hmm. abso patients where we wouldn't want that nausea and vomiting that can come along with those pure muse that, yeah, every once in a while I'm like, oh, I forget about buprenorphine and how versatile it can be. I think like we're just, it's just been drilled into our head for so long that it's a subpar analgesic when compared to things like fentanyl or methadone or like that. Um, but so for you, Dr. Julie, like, let's say you're at a clinic that only has buprenorphine as their opioid. And you had a patient that came in that was like a GI foreign body, right? How would you utilize buprenorphine as part of that analgesic or anesthetic protocol? Yeah. And I think this is, this is a great, a great case, you know, for buprenorphine, a patient who's intestines are maybe trashed. We're really worried about slowing down that GI motility. We're worried about them being nauseated, vomiting, worried about constipation in them. So buprenorphine can be a great opioid option for them. And that's definitely a patient who, because they've got that visceral pain, if I'm using buprenorphine as my opioid, even if I'm using a pure mu opioid um, in this situation, they're a case that I would certainly add on a lidocaine CRI too. And if they're really, really painful, say they've got, uh, you know, ischemic bowel and things like that, in addition to the lidocaine, I may consider ketamine for that visceral pain and, and really provide them with sort of a multimodal way of getting through the procedure. And, you know, that's definitely a case where I would continue the lidocaine afterwards uh, to help decrease the, all that inflammation and to help their GI maybe move a little bit better. Um, but and in these cases, uh, certainly add on, you know, your your gastroprotectants and your serenia as part of your whole plan. So if you were going to use buprenorphine, let's say you, you had a canine come in, you only have buprenorphine, you want to use that as your, you know, that is going to be your opioid. Um, yes. There's so much conflicting information out there about dosing of buprenorphine. Um, you know, if we had like a little, I'll use my, my dog as an example, right? Yeah. He's for people who can't see, he's like snoozing behind us. I have a little, I did not even see that there was a chihuahua sitting behind her and it is just sound asleep. He is a little nine pound chihuahua guys. So let's say he did eat something he wasn't supposed to. We take him in. You're going to use buprenorphine. Um, I mean, sometimes I go into clinics and they're using 0.01 megs per kg for surgical pain. And then sometimes I go into places and they're using like 0.04 megs per kg. Is there a big difference in the dosing as far as analgesia goes? Like what does the evidence say and what's your experience? Yeah. So again, a lot of the, the work has been done in say canine space, things like that. And, and they found that, you know, what really matters, really should matter, is getting the plasma levels of buprenorphine to a therapeutic dose. And to really get there, you need to probably start around 10 micrograms per kilogram, at least IV. Um, and 
again, remember, like we said, the side effects are pretty low. So you can most certainly go higher. I've certainly done, say, 15 to 20 micrograms per kilogram IV or IM. I haven't gone above that because it starts to become just one kind of expensive. And if I'm going IM, the volume. Uh, But one of the things to really think about with buprenorphine, if you are going to use it as your opioid, is, again, she's a complicated lady. So unlike, you know, hydromorphone, when you give it, you know, you get that analgesic effect really rapidly. Buprenorphine, with the way that it distributes and the way that it binds to the receptors, it actually can take a while to have its good onset of action. Plan for probably 45 minutes uh, to an hour for it to start to have its onset of action. You know, the flip, so that is sort of a drawback to it. The flip side of that is the same properties that make it have a slow onset of action make it last a long time. So if I'm going to use it in my patients, I want to give it pretty pretty far in advance before surgery. Uh, if I know that this, this kiddo is going to surgery, I don't want to give it IV along with a sedative, give it its induction agent, take it in the OR because it's not going to have its effect yet. So give it preemptively, give it early, you know, so that it has time to kick in. So, you know, you got that foreign body, little Dobie eats a sock or something. He's going to come in for an ultrasound, you know, give it to him for the ultrasound along with some sedation. So that way it can really kick in. By the time we get to surgery, it can start exerting its, its opioid effects. Oh, and one thing I want to say about buprenorphine is the route of administration is so, so important. If you, if you're looking at papers and you're like, buprenorphine doesn't work for anything, read the route. Oftentimes these, these studies are comparing, you know, buprenorphine given subcutaneously to other opioids given subcutaneously. And the difference is the absorption of buprenorphine subcutaneously is at best erratic Uh, And at worst, you get almost no plasma levels from it. So do not give buprenorphine subcutaneously for, for for any reason, really. Give it IM or IV, or you can give it oral transmucosally. Right. Works a little bit better in cats than dogs. Right. And I have heard that before. I only want to come back to your sub Q thing, but I have heard that before because some places I'll go in and they'll be like, well, we can't, you know, use buprenorphine oral transmucosally in this dog. But I mean, if you have a little chihuahua or a Yorkie or something where the volume and cost isn't going to be an issue, do you ever utilize oral transmucosal buprenorphine in these tiny dogs? Yeah, you can absolutely use it. You know, typically I've used it more as as a to-go-home medication for the, the owners. It's very easy for the owners to give in these little guys uh, but certainly, you know, there's been studies that look at very high dose, high dose, you know, about 100 micrograms per kilogram of oral transmucosal. Remember, this is not IV. This is oral transmucosal buprenorphine before a spay. Huh. And it provided it provided good analgesia. So it is certainly an option um, that you can provide for your patients. Say, say this is a patient that the owner will not, you know, will not tolerate maybe an IM injection and the owners will not allow to have a catheter place for some reason. 
um, and you need to give them something and transfer them somewhere else, you can absolutely give it oral transmucosally. And, you know, it has limited, limited side effects in terms of, again, that bradycardia, the respiratory depression, really no different than, say, 10 to 20 mics per kilo IV. And again, in dogs, the do- that's the do- this is dogs because dogs do not have quite the same bioavailability of oral transmucosal buprenorphine as cats do. Right. That makes sense. Now, going back to your sub-Q uh, comment, it, I would assume that because of that absorption bioavailability, that that's why um, the buprenorphine in a product like Simbadol um, is like super concentrated. Yes. Okay. Yes. This is, it's very concentrated. And so it's designed for that sub-Q use in order to get to actual plasma levels. Um, there are some, there are actually some interesting studies of looking at using Simbadol at lower doses, lower doses, IV, as well as oral transmucosally. It's pretty interesting stuff, but Yes, do not use regular buprenorphine sub-Q. Right, that makes sense. And then just before we wrap up, one thing that I do want to come back to that you said that I think is like a key here uh, when you're talking about that foreign body that maybe ate a sock and you want to give it a little something, you mentioned giving the buprenorphine, but then also giving a sedative. So I think that that's one thing that I try to stress with people is that buprenorphine is not sedating in the same way that you get with like methadone. Right. Exactly. And that's, that's the beauty of it, right? When I have a patient who I'm very concerned that if I get this thing sedated from an opioid, you know, and he goes into a respiratory depression, depressant effect and stops breathing, obstructs, you know, goes hypoxemic, you know, those are real side effects of the pure mu opioids. So one of the, again, double-edged sword parts of buprenorphine is that it's not very sedating and they sort of maintain their wits about them. They maintain their respiratory drive. So I, I do highly recommend do not use buprenorphine as your sole, you know, pre-anesthetic uh, option. Do combine it. Remember, we want to combine an opioid with a sedative to get our synergistic effect. So combine it with if you have alpha-2 agonists or if you have acepromazine, you know, use it with, with those sorts of drugs. All right. So I have one more question before we let you go. And um, this wasn't on the list of questions. This is just me kind of thinking out loud, thinking about all the different ways we give buprenorphine. Um, and one of them is kind of this newer thing on the market, which is Zorbium, which is a transdermal buprenorphine. And I've worked with a dentist that uses this because he doesn't want the owners going in after extractions and trying to give this. So we give this. And for the most part, it works pretty good. But you know, cats and opioids, sometimes some of them, they end up with these, they're, they're hyperthermic, right? They come back, Uh, maybe they're like 103. Um, How concerned are you about that? Are you reversing that opioid? Are you just monitoring it? Is it transient? How freaked out are you with the hyperthermia after they've been given transdermal buprenorphine? (laughs) Yeah. So cats, cats and opioids are funny. Some people are like, Oh no, cats and opioids. No, you know, <laughs> cats absolutely can have opioids and cats can do some wacky things on opioids. 
And one of them is get very, very hot. Uh, they can, it can, it can be quite significant. It can be as high as 106, 107 degrees Fahrenheit. Typically for me, you know, we know that it's a self-limiting. It's a self-limiting event. We know that it's caused by the opioid and we know that it is naloxone responsive, this hyperthermia. For me, if I, if we have got a cat who is on opioids and he's 102, 103, we'll watch it. We'll keep track of it. And if he goes any higher, I would consider reversing. If a cat is starting to become 10, over 104, 105, then I'm starting to become very concerned because it's, again, even though I know it's self-limiting, that hyperthermia is doing damage to the cells. It's doing damage to the body. And, and I don't want to let that go on, especially in something that's supposed to last three days. Is this hyperthermia going to last three days? I don't know, but I don't want to find out the hard way. So definitely something to keep an eye on owners and veterinarians alike and start, start having some alarms go off once they start getting mid, you know, 103.5 or so, start to really watch them closely. Um, and like I always say with any extended duration product, if you can find out how this patient may react to a single dose of the regular product first, Maybe give that a try. Uh, so maybe see how these animals will respond to a single injection of regular buprenorphine so that if they do get crazy hyperthermic or if they do, you know, some cats on opioids, they turn into like they are having an all night Brooklyn warehouse rager. Oh, yeah. Mine, and, mine yeah. was like climbing the mini blinds like she was so yeah. high. Uh, but then I had another cat that was like a dish rag. Like he was just yep. like zonked out. Just, yeah. Rolling, purring, yeah. making muffins. Yeah. Or they are, you know, on top of your fridge, scrambling on top of your cabinets all night long. And you don't know which patient is going to do what. So I always recommend with those sorts of drugs, give them a single injection. If it goes very well, go ahead with the longer term. Uh, if it goes if it goes poorly, uh, maybe reconsider your options. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely, definitely good advice for those cats that <laughs> the cats don't, they do what they want. So, <laughs> all right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for hanging out with us today and talking about buprenorphine. Hopefully this has given some people uh, a little more confidence, especially just using the drug. And again, in places that maybe don't have access to schedule twos, feeling a little bit better about the level of analgesia that they're able to provide. And yep. um, yeah, like you said before, I'm all about a lidocaine CRI. Not in my feline friends, but- Not in our feline friends. But I certainly, like, I will usually go towards, well, you know this because we work together, but I'm usually leaning towards a lidocaine CRI or a ketamine CRI before the fentanyl CRI Absolutely. many times. Absolutely, me too. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on our show and we will put show notes in to some of the studies that Dr. Julie mentioned, you guys. So go check it out and have a great day. Awesome, thank you.
right, awesome, yay, that was great.